Well, he was uh, born November 30th of 1874 into an aristocratic British family. And uh, you might not guess from his early life that he would be destined to become a leader. Uh, Early on, he hated school. Uh, Coming from an aristocratic family, they sent him to a a well-known boarding school at the age of seven, and he just hated it. Underperformed academically, was a terrible student, and uh, was known to misbehave regularly. As as a a youth, uh, as a student, Later in life, he was described as accident-prone. He frequently fell off of horses, dislocated his shoulder, uh, once was injured stepping off a ship in India, fell, and again dislocated his shoulder. Uh, you, you wouldn't think, this is someone I want to follow their leadership. Later in his life, he decided he wanted to attend uh, the Royal Military Academy in Great Britain, and he took the entrance exam and failed it. So he retook the entrance exam and failed it a second time. So he decided he would get a tutor, which he did, and he, he worked diligently. And he passed just enough to be admitted to the cavalry class in the British Royal Military Academy, which had less stringent requirements than the infantry class. So he made it, but just barely. Later, this leader would find himself in a a parliamentary position and and actually earned a cabinet position in the British government where he was named uh, in charge of all of the British Navy. Now, his leadership was described by some as uh, he was a bullheaded person. He was someone who really wouldn't consider other strategies. His idea was the right way, and that's what we were going to do. And so it was these less uh, noble qualities that led him during World War I to decide to attack the Ottoman Empire in present-day Turkey at Gallipoli. He decided this amphibious assault was, was what they needed to do with the British forces, and so the British Navy got in position, and this uh, aquatic uh, battle that began there lasted for several months, and there were tens and tens of thousands of casualties. Ultimately, Great Britain lost, and it was a, a bitter embarrassment for Great Britain. This leader lost his cabinet position, and his wife, whose name was Clementine, she later said it was a failure so deep and so bitter she thought the grief might actually kill her husband. Who would like to follow this leader? Anyone? Sign me up. Well, you and I know him as Sir Winston Churchill, who would later, during World War II, lead Great Britain through one of their times of deepest crisis. But Winston Churchill had this season where he encountered a deep failure, where he encountered a substantial setback. And the way that he responded to that and the way that he came through that, I think, was part of what formed him and shaped him to be the kind of leader who was ready to lead in and through crisis later in life. And that's what I want to look at today. How do we survive places of setback and failure? Because encountering setbacks in life, encountering places where we just fail or make bad decisions, I think those things are an inevitable part of living. I think the question becomes, how do we face those things? How do we process those things? How do we work through seasons of setback and failure? Because I am convinced that the way that we respond to seasons of setback and failure is vitally important and can actually transform places of setback into places of deep spiritual formation in our lives. So how do we begin to respond to this? And and as we unpack this this morning, I want to look at the nation of Israel at a time in their history where they are just entering the promised land and they are setting out to conquer this land that God has given them. 
So we're going to look at Joshua chapter 7 today, but if you notice the the first six chapters of Joshua, if you know the story, it's Israel is just entering the promised land. Joshua is their their newly appointed leader, and he's ready to continue this campaign to conquer the land that God has given them. And God provides for them in some miraculous ways. To enter the promised land, they have to cross the Jordan River, which is at flood stage. And God miraculously stops the water, and Israel crosses through the, the, the Jordan River at flood stage on dry ground. Their first battle when they cross is the Battle of Jericho, and and you might be familiar with that story. It's where they march around the city, and and finally on the seventh day, they march around seven times and blow trumpets, and the walls miraculously come crumbling down, and God provides them this amazing victory. In chapter 7, however, just on the heels of their victory at Jericho comes a crushing defeat and a season of, of failure and setback for the nation of Israel and particularly for Joshua as their leader. We're going to pick up in Joshua chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. It says, But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and he told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up, and they spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and don't weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear, and they became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes, and he fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. But what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and they will wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They have turned their backs and run because they've been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. So coming off this fresh victory at Jericho, they, they continue to spy out the land, and there's this small town of Ai. And Joshua sends the spies, they check it out, and they say, oh, this is easy stuff. It's a small town, only a few people uh, live there. They say, Joshua, don't even send the whole army. Just send a few people. We'll go up, we'll conquer it quick, and we'll be back by evening for dinner, right? That, that's the kind of sense you get. Like, this is easy stuff. This should be a quick victory, and they should come back celebrating, but what happens when we read the story is they go up to attack I, and they find themselves mysteriously. They're bewildered, I'm sure. They're totally routed, and they end up running away from the men of I, and they're struck down on the slopes of the stone quarry. And for Joshua, he responds to this setback with a place of bitter failure in his life. And so the question I want to look at is, how does Joshua respond to this? And what are some things that we can learn from Joshua's example? And what are some things that we need to be aware of in the midst of what it means to survive a season of setback or to survive a place of deep failure? 
But first, I want to begin with some cautions, because there's some things I think we need to be aware of and to, to, to be mindful of, of their presence in our life. The first thing I think we have to be cautious of or aware of is the reality that God does not bless disobedience, right? We cannot be disobedient and encounter the consequences of our disobedience and then turn and say, God, where were you, right? That doesn't make any sense. God has outlined a way for us to live in his word. He has called us to follow him, to live in relationship with him. If we are going to live in disobedience to God, we will suffer the consequences of disobedience, why would God bless disobedience? It doesn't make any sense, right? Jesus says he's in, in the Gospels, I've come that you might have life to the abundance or to the full. And so we know that the richness of life, the true depth of what we were supposed to be as, as, as people is found only in Jesus Christ. If we're going to be disobedient and rebel against God, why would God bless a path in which we're running away from him, running towards death? He's not going to. And so if we are living in a place of disobedience and we are encountering setbacks and hardships, part of that is the consequence of just living in outright disobedience to the way that God has called his people to live. Here's the second thing I think we have to be cautious of is that we have to be careful attempting things independently of God's direction. And I'm aware that for a lot of us, we're probably not living life in outright total disobedience. Maybe some of us are. But I think for a lot of us, we live life with a sort of independent attitude and mindset from God's direction. I mean, how many times on a Monday morning do we get up and you're thinking about the to-do list at work or the to-do list at home, and we launch right into our routine without ever inviting God's plan, purpose, or direction into that moment? How many times do we make decisions about taking a new job or buying a new car or buying a new house, and we don't ever stop to pray or to ask God's presence into those things? And maybe for some of you, even as I'm saying that, you're thinking, well, isn't, isn't that kind of silly? Do we need to ask God about all those things? And, and I think a lot of times we just live life independently of God's voice and his purpose and his direction. We don't even invite him into the process. And, and what I think is fascinating, when you read the Jericho account in, in chapters 2 through 6, you, all over the place you see divine language. Actually, God tells Israel, I have given Jericho into your hands. God never says that in chapter 7. He never says, I have given you I, go up and attack it. No place in chapter 7 does the nation of Israel say, God, should we go up and attack I? Actually, in chapter 8, after they repent, God will again tell them, I've given you I, go up and attack it. Here, the nation of Israel, they act totally independently of God's direction. And, and I think this leads us to our third caution is, be careful that success doesn't lead to a place of self-confidence and self-dependence. I think this is a dangerous one, that sometimes we have a season of great success in our lives, and what we do is rather than attributing that success to God's grace and his work in our life, what do we do? We start to say, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm, st I'm starting to get this thing figured out. Can you resonate with that? You maybe start to build up a reputation at work as someone who gets stuff done, you're successful, and people start to value your opinion, and they start to respect your authority, and we want to quickly attribute that to ourselves. Well, I've gotten the education, and I've got training and experience, and I finally earned the respect and the reputation from people around me, and I'm pretty good. But we miss the reality that the only reason we can be that good is because God has blessed us and his grace has been at work in our lives. But the danger of success is what God has given us we attribute to our own ability. And part of me wonders if that's a little bit of what happened here with Israel. They attacked Jericho, this massive walled city that they shouldn't have been able to conquer, and they conquer it. And now here's little itty-bitty I. Let's just do this. Easy stuff. 
we'll run up there, conquer it quick. We don't, we don't even need to send the whole army. Joshua, just send like two or 3,000. That's it. Easy stuff. But they haven't inquired of God. They do this independently of God's direction and of God's voice and purpose in their life. And their overconfidence, their oversense of self-sufficiency causes them not to depend on God and his gracious provision but their own strength and their own ability. And it costs them. So as we begin this conversation about how to survive setbacks and encounter seasons of failure, I want us to be aware of those three things first. Because if we're living in disobedience, we need to understand what it is to live rightly and obediently to how God has called us to live. If we're living independently of his direction, we need to understand what it looks like to invite God in to the day-to-day processes of our life. If we are owning our own failures as our, our own successes as our own and not acknowledging God's provision, I think we set ourselves up for a place of deep failure. Because I think that God is gracious enough that if we say, I'm pretty capable, I can do this thing called life, I think God will say, all right, you can try it. And that usually doesn't end well when I try it on my own. How about you? So Joshua has sent the army up and they're bitterly defeated. And here's the big idea that I want us to take today. Is that there are some things that Joshua learns in this season of setback and failure that are of utmost importance for his life. And so maybe for some of us, maybe 2017 wasn't a year that you want to you remember. Maybe you're ready to leave it behind. You're ready to step into 2018. Maybe there was a season of setbacks. There were some failures, some things that you encountered. And you're going, praise the Lord, it's 2018. Let's leave that behind and not look back. But, but I think in not reflecting on seasons of setback and failure, I think sometimes we miss some of the things that God wants to form and shape in his people. And so I want to look this morning at, at Joshua's attitude, at the way he responds, so we can gain some sort of understanding on how to survive seasons of fe- setback and how to come out of the other side of failure with a new, renewed perspective and a renewed appreciation for God's grace and his mercy. So what does this look like for Joshua? Some things to be aware of. First is that seasons of setback and failure can corrode our faith. Seasons of setback or failure can corrode our faith. Look at verse 4 again. It says, So about 3,000 of the men went up, uh, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Did you notice that last phrase? It says that the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Now, what's interesting is this is not the first time that this sort of phraseology is used in the book of Joshua. In fact, if you look back at chapter 2, this idea of the hearts of the people melting in fear and becoming like water is used three times to describe the people of the city of Jericho. In in chapter 2, Rahab the prostitute, when she's talking to the Israelite spies, she says, I know the Lord has given this land to you, And that a great fear of you has fallen on all of us, so that all who live in this country, catch this, are melting in fear because of you. Later, she says, when we heard of your success, our hearts sank and everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Did you catch that? Everyone's courage failed because we heard of what God's doing in you. At the end of the chapter, it says, they said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. Catch this, all the people are melting in fear because of us. Now, what's fascinating is that up to this point in the book of Joshua, the only people who have been described as melting in fear are the faithless people of the land of Canaan. This is the first time in the book of Joshua that God's people are described as melting in fear. 
And, and I think part of what we see here is that this failure, it begins to sort of corrode the faith and the trust of the people of Israel that they have in God. I think the reason that they're so afraid is they wonder, did God abandon us here? God, did you, did you lead us to this place to attack I only to abandon us and have us suffer defeat? And actually, I think Joshua says as much. In, in verse 7, Joshua says this. He says, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Do you hear the accusation? Joshua was saying, you led us all the way here just to leave us and just to abandon us. And how many times do we respond in a similar way when we're following God's call, we're being obedient, and we encounter a setback or we encounter a failure, and we immediately look at God and go, what are you doing? Why did you lead me here, just to fail? And our assumption and our accusation of God's character is that God is one who will leave his people But if they remember the covenant promise of God, God is not a God who who abandons his people. God will always be faithful to his covenant promise. That their hearts are melting in fear is an accusation against God's character and against his faithfulness as a God who will always uphold his word. That their hearts are melting in fear and becoming like water. For an Israelite reading this passage, they're going, wait, 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 wait. That's not how the people of God are described. That's at this point only how the people of Canaan who have been described who don't have the God of all creation behind them. Seasons of setback and failure can corrode our faith. Secondly, I think seasons of setback and failure can cause us to give up hope and surrender our calling. Notice again what Joshua does beginning in verse 6. He tears his clothes and he falls face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. In verse 7 he says, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring us here? across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites. Can, can you hear him losing hope? I mean, this isn't the, the, the courageous confession of a leader who's like, you know what, God, this is a setback. We're going to get through it. We'll get back at it. No, Joshua goes, seriously, God, you led us here just to abandon us? I mean, he's, he's losing hope in God's ability to provide for them. He said, if only we had been content to what? To stay on the other side of the Jordan River. And in the midst of the setback and the failure that they've experienced, Joshua immediately goes to this place and says, if only we had stayed over there because that's familiar and that's safe and that's comfortable. And I felt like I was in control over there. And and I think oftentimes we want to go back to where we felt content and where we felt in control. But listen, God never calls his people back to contentment. God consistently calls his people into things that are beyond our capacity and capability. God consistently calls us to places where we have no option but to trust his provision. There are so many times that God has called me to things that absolutely terrify me. And there are things that I have no option but to say, God, if I'm going to step into this, you have got to meet me there. I've said this before, but I literally, I was the kid in middle school and high school, I was physically ill if I had to give a a presentation in class. Right? You can see how this worked out for me, right? (laughs) But God called me to that. And it is something I said, God, I am not capable. I am not competent. I don't even want to do it. But God said, this is for you, and you need to step into this, trusting that I will meet you there. But Joshua, he's lost hope, and he wants to surrender his calling, and he wants to go back there. Listen, God has not called you to go back to what's content. God calls us to consistently push into our calling. And part of this other question that I hope is bubbling up is, what is your calling? What has God called you to? He might not have called you to be a missionary or a pastor, but I believe that even right where you're living and working, that God is calling you to something. 
Maybe you're a business leader. And God has called you to be the kind of leader who leads their team not out of coercion and not out of a place of control because you have authority and power, but maybe God has called you to lead, to lead out of a place of compassion and empathy and candid truth-telling in a way that develops and lifts up people around you, in a way that invests leadership in others. And, and maybe you've tried that and you say, you know, when I try to lead with empathy and compassion, when I try to lead in a way that genuinely cares for people, sometimes I feel like I get walked all over and I want to go back to leading out of coercion and control and power, but God hasn't called you to that. Don't go back there. Maybe God has called you to be a stay-at-home parent and invest intentionally in your children. And maybe part of you in answering that call, you go, man, part of this feels unfulfilled. What about my other talents? Sometimes I just crave other adult interaction. You're saying, I want to go back to what's, what's, what's content and what's where I feel con in control. But God has not called you to go back there. Listen, don't live in disobedience going back to where God has not called you to go. Continue to push in to the call of God on your life. And believe that God will meet you there. Joshua, in the midst of his failure, he is losing that hope and his trust in, in, in the, the providence of God is being corroded. I think, too, that seasons of setback and failure, they bring up insecurities. Man, this is hard. Listen to what Joshua says in verse 8. Pardon your servant, Lord. I love that because, ooh, Joshua's gotten a medal in, hasn't he? When, when you have to tell God, pardon your servant, Joshua knows, right, that he's kind of crossed the line here. He, he's not just frustrated. He, he's in the place. Now. He's, he's straight up pointing the finger at God and saying, you did this, right? So now he backs off a little, pardon your servant, Lord. But then he says this. He says, what can I say now that Israel's been routed by its enemies? So here's Joshua. He's in charge of leading the entire nation of Israel, whose hearts, by the way, have just melted in, in fear, and their hearts have become like water. And now Joshua goes, what in the world do I say to all these people who are trusting my leadership? And part of me wonders, is Joshua nervous because Moses has just passed the mantle of leadership to him and one of his first great military strategies is to get defeated by this tiny little city of Ai. So how does he walk back and say, I mean, what's that locker room talk look like, right? Hey guys, you know, I know, I know we should have beaten Ai, but let's get back in there, you know, let's, let, let's do this. I mean, that's what he's asking God. How do I go back to those people and get their hearts re-engaged in what you've called us to? There's nothing I can say here. And Joshua's at this place where I think his insecurities are, are facing him fully, squarely in the face, and he's not sure how to take action. And he wants God to know that he's frustrated. I, I've got to go back and lead those people. What do I say now? And I think it gets dangerous when we let our insecurities in those moments dictate our course of action rather than letting our, our belief and our trust in God and his character to dictate our course of action. So it brings up insecurities. Also, I think seasons of setback and failure can distort our perspective. Seasons of failure and setback can distort our perspective. Look at verse 9. The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out your name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? So one of my uh, probably least in good qualities um, is I, I'm, I am like Joshua in this way. He suffers setback, he suffers failure, and what does he do? He immediately goes to worst case scenario. Well, God, now, now that we've lost once, everyone's going to hear about this, and the people of Canaan, they're going to surround us, and they're going to completely destroy us. Okay, let's get a little perspective. If you read the account of the Battle of Jericho, we know that they mustered around 40,000 people. In chapter 8, they will take 30,000 to go up to attack Ai again when they're victorious. 
Now, let's say they have an army of 40,000 people. They had 36 casualties. That means Joshua lost roughly 0.0009% of his army. And now he's saying, everyone's going to find out and they're going to crush us and wipe our name from the earth. He goes immediately to the worst case scenario, assuming that the absolute worst thing is going to happen. But it's a hypothetical. It's not even truth. But his, his entire reality is defined by this one momentary failure that's right in front of him, and he can't see past that. His assumption, again, is that God has abandoned them there, and God won't be faithful, and suddenly everyone's going to hear it and destroy them. And he gets, by the way, one last dig into God. Do you notice that he says, and what about your great name? He says, people know that we're your people. They know that we follow you as our God. If they wipe us out, they're going to look at you and think that you're a weak God who can't even take care of his own people. This is on you too. It'd be more funny if I didn't identify with it so much. Right? I can be just as much of a little brat as Joshua can. I don't want to admit that, but it's true. But when you get some perspective, you realize, Joshua, you haven't even lost a major portion of your army, but he's forgotten all of the past victories. Joshua is not remembering the God who led them through the Red Sea on dry ground. Joshua is not remembering the God who led them out of Egypt, one of the most powerful military forces of the day. God brought them in freedom from Egypt. Joshua is not remembering the God who literally stopped the Jordan River at its flood stage so they could walk through. Joshua is not remembering the God who delivered Jericho into their hands. All Joshua can see is the failure. And he says, God, this is going to go to the extreme that everyone's going to wipe us out and we're going to lose everything. Man, he jumps right to the worst possible thing because his, his perspective is so, so distorted. And I think a similar thing happens for us when we encounter a setback or a deep failure. We let that distort our perspective and all we can do is fixate on that one place of failure and we miss the rest of God's provision and faithfulness in our lives. Even if you're not a journaler, I don't care if you hate to write, do this one thing. When there are moments where you see God come through faithfully, write those down and keep a list. Because there are moments when you are in a season of setback or when you are in a place of deep failure and your faith is not there, all you can do is go back to that list and say, God, I'm trusting that you are the same God who delivered me when. I'm trusting you're the same God who provided when. And go back and remember those things because it has a way of re-anchoring and reframing our perspective around the truth of who God is. Because when our perspective is distorted, we have to recognize that we're not seeing truth clearly. Also, seasons of doubt or setback and failure can cause us to become passive. Now, I was struck by Joshua's response, right? So he has this season of failure, and he goes before the ark of the Lord, and he rips his clothes, which is a symbol of mourning, and the elders join him, and they put dust on their heads, and they're all laying face down. And my first read-through of this, I thought, you know what? Good job, Joshua. You're going, and you're, you're seeking God's presence in the midst of failure. And I thought it was a good response until I saw God's response to Joshua. I love this, because in, in my mind, you know, God is down there going, Joshua, hey, buddy, come on, we, we should get back in this, right? It's okay. Like, in my mind, that's how God should respond. But what I think is fascinating is, is notice what it says in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. W what are you doing down on your face? He calls him out. Now, now think about this. They have just suffered a bitter defeat, and the entire nation, their army, it says their hearts melted 
and became like water. His whole nation is ready to give up on their mission and calling, and Joshua is laying face down in the presence of God, and God's saying, what are you doing? Stand up, go back out there and lead your people. But, but Joshua let this setback and this failure drive him to a place of being passive, and he has abdicated the role that God has called him to play in the lives of people he has called to lead. And I think if we're not careful, we let a season of setback or failure drive us to a place of passive self-pity. And this is what I think is important about God's response, is he does not let Joshua wallow in self-pity. He says, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Later in verse 13, he says, go. There is work to be done. Take new action in a new direction. And then in verse 13, he also tells them this. He says, consecrate the people and tell them to consecrate themselves. Get up. Take action. Consecrate the people. And the act of consecration is this act of surrendering oneself fully to God and setting yourselves apart for service to God and his call and his purpose for, for his people. And Joshua has no room and no excuse to get locked into a place of passive self-pity. God says, stand up and get to it. So how do we begin to respond in these places of, of setback and failure? I think the first thing is, is it's okay to mourn. I think it's okay to be upset that things didn't go the way we'd hoped. I, I think the problem here is not that Joshua enters a place of mourning. I think it's that he gets stuck there and he loses faith in the character of the God that he serves. He starts to say things like, God, why did you lead us here just to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites? But I think it's okay to mourn when things don't go the way that you anticipated. But here's the thing. Use that time of mourning as a reflection moment to say, okay, God, is there disobedience in my life? Are, are there places where uh, I am living independently, where I'm, just, I'm not even seeking your guidance? God, are, are there places in my life where I'm living a sort of self-sufficient lifestyle? I've let success, uh, I've taken too much ownership of it. And, and sometimes I think, that maybe God even leads us into places of setback or allows us to encounter failure because there's things that God wants to teach and shape in us in those seasons. And so sometimes it's not even that we've been disobedient. It's not even that we've been living independently. It's not that we've been self-sufficient. Sometimes just living in a broken world, we encounter seasons of setback and failure, and those become important places to say, God, what, what can I learn? What are you teaching me in this place? Am I aware to the things that God wants me to learn even through a difficult place? So mourn it, but use that mourning as a moment of reflection. I think, too, in the midst of setback and failure, remind yourself of God's promises. Remind yourself of God's character. Go back and read his word and look at places where God says, I am the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Because what that tells me is that even when I'm in a season of setback, that God is still there. He has not abandoned me. So go back, look at his word, remember his promises, remember his faithfulness. Because we're aware that in a season of setback or failure, it's easy for our perspective to be distorted. So go back and re-anchor your life in the truth of God's promise and God's word. Third, re-consecrate your life. In a moment of, of setback or failure, take it as this opportunity to say, God, I feel defeated. This is not what I hoped would happen. This is not the outcome I wanted. But God, I, I'm continuing to trust you. And I will to continue to pour my life into the things that you have called me to and into the way that you have called me to live. 
and use it as a moment to reaffirm what you believe about God and what you believe about what he has called you to be a part of. And finally, take new action in a new direction. As God opens doors on the other side of a season or setback and failure, respond like Joshua. Get up off your feet. Step into the call that God has on your life and be faithful to do what you have consecrated and committed your life to do. I know the outline's done. Stay with me. Two more minutes. When you finish chapter 7, there's this, this moment where Achan, who had stolen the devoted things that he was not to have in his possession, he gets justice handed to him. And chapter 7 ends like this. It says, Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Check this out. It says, therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. And if you look in your footnote, it says that, that Achor means trouble. They literally named that place where all of this happened, they named it the Valley of Trouble. I mean, this is a painful place in the life and the history of the people of Israel. This is, this is forevermore known now as the Valley of Trouble. But this is not the only place in, in Scripture that the Valley of Trouble is mentioned. If you flip over to Hosea chapter 2, Hosea is this book all about God's faithfulness to his people who have rebelled. In Hosea, God brings charges against the nation of Israel. He says, you have been unfaithful, you have been disobedient. But the book of Hosea is all about how God does not give up on people who have been rebellious or disobedient. And in chapter 2, there's this moment in Hosea when the tone of the book shifts towards redemption. And God says this, he says, therefore, I am now going to allure her. This is the people of Israel. I will lead her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. Check this out. He says, therefore, I will give back her vineyard. Catch this. He says, and I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Did you check out what God just says there? He says, the valley of trouble will be the valley of trouble no more. The valley of trouble will become the doorway of God's hope. And I believe in a God who can redeem and transform all things. And maybe right now you are walking through what you would describe as the valley of trouble. And it is a bitter place of defeat and setback and failure in your life. Do you believe that God is big enough and capable enough to step into that valley of trouble and make it a doorway of his hope? That's a great place to amen, right? <laughs> Let's believe it, church. I would not be in ministry today if I did not believe that with my whole entire being. That is what gets me up in the morning. That is what drives me in what I do. That no life, no situation, no circumstance is beyond the redemption of God. Where do you need a doorway of hope? Invite him into your place of setback. Invite him into your place of failure. In the valley of trouble, trust that God will bring a doorway of hope. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for the truth of your word, and I thank you for someone like Joshua. It's, it's both good and it's hard to see his humanity. It's good because I look at Joshua's life and, and I resonate so much with it that there's, there's times where I go to the worst possible outcome and there's times where my perspective is distorted and I forget about your provision and, there, and there's times where I just want to give up and be passive in what you've called me to. But God, when I see the way that Joshua responds and the way that he trusts your ability to redeem all things, God, I, I pray that, that we would hold to that. And God, I pray this morning for those of us who are here and, and maybe we're walking through a difficult season. Maybe this past year has been for us a season of setback or a place of failure. God, I pray that we would be reminded that you have not abandoned us there. God, I pray that we would be reminded that the God we serve is big enough to take a valley of trouble 
and transform it and redeem it to be a doorway of hope. Father, we love you, and may we know today your grace in very real and tangible ways. In Jesus' name, amen.